Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of the Serial Killer Podcast is, as all previous seven episodes, advertisement-free. But it is not free to produce, and in order to give you, dear listener, regular content, I appreciate all help. So if you enjoy this podcast, please visit my Patreon on www.patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. Any donation is very much appreciated. And so, with that out of the way, on with the show. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. On this very first week of 2017, we are once more back in the United States of America. Most serial killers in the world are, for some unknown reason, located in the land of the free and home of the brave, and tonight's subject is no exception. Although he is not a U.S. citizen, and even though our story tonight is not of the most famous of serial killers, he still offers a unique story. We travel to Rust Country, the home of Vehicle City, the famous city of Flint, in the great state of Michigan. No more than just over six years ago, this city of such former wealth, now plagued with financial duress, was faced with an evil not visited upon them ever before. 
In the period between March of 2009 and August of 2010, at least 20 were savagely attacked and five men were brutally murdered by a single man, Elias Abu Al-Assam, the Flint serial killer, also known simply as the serial slasher. A common myth about serial killers is that they are white males. While it is true that males make up the massive majority of serial murderers, serial murder happens in all the corners of the world and by people of all colors and creeds. I, your humble host, remember this case very well, especially the first composite sketches circulated in the media. I never thought they appeared similar to the killer, other than both sketch and picture have him wearing a distinctive ear piercing. So who was this foreign man, terrorizing the city of Flint? Elias, most commonly called Eli, Abu al-Azam, was born in August the 29th, 1976, in Israel. He was the youngest child of six, and he had five sisters. In fact, his parents kept having children until they had a son, a psychiatrist later testified. Because he was the firstborn son in a male-dominated culture, he was spoiled. He never had to be responsible for his actions. The psychiatrist who evaluated him twice testified. As with many, but not all, serial killers, he lacked a stable, loving father figure growing up. Abuel Azam's father died when he was just a toddler. Now, this had a profound effect on him, and he would tell a psychiatrist that he felt that he had died with his father. At age seven or eight, Eli and his mother moved to the United States. They visited Tony Sawami, Eli's uncle, before moving to California. As he grew into adulthood, Eli lived in California, Florida, Virginia, and Israel over the next several years, and behavioral issues started to pop up. He was a D student in school. Eli's acquaintances in Israel said he stayed close to his mother's house, near the municipal market in Ramla. He didn't have a steady job, and was largely financed by his mother. Acquaintances also said he sometimes used drugs and got entangled in fights. He is a bulky man, a frightening character, someone you don't want to mess with, said an acquaintance. In 1997, still in Israel, he tried to commit suicide, and he was thus admitted into a psychiatric facility where a doctor said he was psychotic. After this, he made his way back to America, and for a number of years, he lived in Virginia with his sister. Rather surprisingly, the man an Israeli doctor had said was psychotic worked at a mental hospital in Virginia, the Piedmont Behavioral Health Center in Leesburg, all the way up until 2002. Abuel Azam thus fits the characteristics of the classic psychopath. He never had much regard for the law, often shoplifted, got into violent fights, 
and was probably regarded as somewhat of an intimidating bully. He is described by those who knew him as an adult as a calm but somewhat introverted man, but with a tendency of sudden violent outbursts of extreme anger. In 2009, he stabbed a friend in the neck while in Virginia. The friend survived, but Abu al-Azam was briefly admitted to a psychiatric center there, probably not the same facility he had previously been employed at. After this, Eli became a drifter. He would stay in place a month or two and then take off. He went through two failed marriages in Florida. One of them had Hearth as her last name, and her father ended up testifying in court. There was a bit of abuse, James Hearth, the father of Eli's ex-wife, told ABC News. Hearth said Abu al-Azam was rough with his daughter before the couple divorced in 2007. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much details of Eli's second wife, only that her name was Jessica. But given his violent history, it's not improbable that she divorced him on grounds of abuse. Fast forward to May the 22nd, 2010. This was the day Abu al-Azam arrived in Flint. He was living in Florida and wanted to move with his sister in Leesburg. His sister didn't want him and sent him to Flint to live with his uncle, Sawami. Sawami, who has 15 siblings, one of which is Abu al-Azam's mother, is seen in his family as a patriarch. He has owned a successful grocery store, was a carpenter and worked at a Buick plant. He was fortunate enough to be able to financially support family members. He took his nephew in. But his girlfriend didn't like the idea of a man living under the same roof as her teenage daughter, so Eli was sent to live next door at a home Savami owned. Only two days after Eli arrived in Flint, on May the 24th, 2010, the slender 31-year-old David Motley was stabbed with a hunting knife, repeatedly in the stomach and chest region. His stomach was torn open almost from groin to chest. He did not survive his gruesome injuries and bled out on Leith and Dexter Street, two blocks from the home where Abu al-Azam lived. After having his uncle help him get a job at the market and a Chevy Blazer to drive, Eli liked to drive around the city, fantasizing about murder and selecting targets. Etwan Wilson, a young black man of 17 at the time, was walking in the area of Cloverlawn and Pearson Roads. It was early morning on a Sunday when a large man in a Chevy Blazer stopped him and asked for directions. Abu al-Azam suddenly pounced and stabbed Wilson in the stomach area, leaving him in critical condition with almost his entire gut ripped open. Detective Tidball was among the group of Flint police detectives that responded to the scene that very night. It was in the middle of a deadly air in Flint, which saw a record of a total of 66 homicides, 
At the scene, a Genesee County Sheriff's deputy, David Lang, mentioned to Tidball that he had responded to a number of stabbings recently and he thought they could be related. It just wasn't typical, even in such a deadly year, to see so many stabbings. The vast majority of attacks in the area are from gun violence, not stabbings. Interesting, Tidball noted, something she would have to check out when she returned to work on Monday. Instead, about 24 hours later, Detective Tidball got another call, another stabbing, this one deadly. Arnold Miner had been found in a pool of blood on Saginaw Street near 12th Street, laying near the curb with fresh stab wounds. Tidball immediately alerted Captain T.P. Johnson, her boss, that these attacks could be related. Later that morning, Detective Kimes was driving to work when he heard on his police scanner about a minor killing. Kimes was the lead investigator on the July 30 homicide of Frank Kellybrew, aged 60 years old, who was stabbed to death on Miller Road near Italia Gardens. Acting on a hunch, he went to the Flint scene. It was a similar situation, said Kimes. He wasn't robbed. Kimes and Tidball decided it was time to call an emergency meeting of police chiefs in the county. They compared notes and eventually found that there were four stabbing deaths in Flint and another in Flint Township. There were also known fatal stabbing victims, seven in Flint and one each in Burton and Genesee Township. After Miner's death and after five homicides, the task force to hunt the most deadly serial killer in Flint's history was on. But why did it take so long for police to figure out about the pattern? Detective Tidball explained to M Live Media Group that the first two stabbings, Motley and Emmanuel Dent Muhammad, were deadly and occurred a month apart from one another on different sides of town. Then victims started to survive, starting with Bill Fisher on June 26th in Flint. The fourth victim was Thomas Booker in Genesee Township. The fifth one was Antoine Jackson in Burton, said Tidball. You had five victims, only three who had survived and just one in Flint, she continued. Detective Kimes also noted that the Flint Police Department had just suffered massive layoffs in March and were reshuffling remaining staff. All this during the deadliest year ever in the city. It was at a press conference held by Flint Police on August the 4th that news of the serial killer was released to the public. Officer Johnson famously said, I think... He's hunting. One of the victims, Richard Booker, 49 years old, was released from a Flint hospital where he had been for three weeks after being stabbed. He told ABC News that he has 68 staples throughout his back and belly and has slash wounds on his arms because he tried to prevent the man from, and I quote, cutting off his face. I've never hurt so much in my life, 
never come so close to death, Booker told ABC News Wednesday. I was about dead. Booker, who is white, dismisses the notion that the attacks were racially motivated. I'm obviously not black. The guy's just a stone-cold killer, Booker said. Booker was stabbed five times, including a roughly 12-inch long vertical slash from below his belly button all the way up to his chest. He lost eight pints of blood from his wounds. Antoine Marshall, who was attacked at the end of July in 2010, described a similar experience and similar wounds. He told ABC News he was stabbed six times in his stomach and chest. It's a very, very violent type of crime, Leighton told Good Morning America. Maybe he's enjoying watching them suffer. Maybe he's enjoying watching them wriggle around in pain. But we really don't know what he's thinking, and we won't until we bring him in and talk to him. Victims have told police the crimes occurred when they were alone, and the suspect approached them asking for directions or help with his car. Then he stabbed them with an edged weapon. Booker's story matched this one. He said the man asked him for help, opening the hood of his SUV. The police had by then formed a task force, and Abu al-Azam, who up until August of 2010 had been hunting, was about to become the hunted. Yeja Moore was calling the tip line set up by the task force around midnight on August 11th. She ended up dialing it three times, giving a little more information on each call. There were 313 tips before hers. Some were so vague there was nothing to follow up on. This call was different. She had met a man earlier this month at her father's workplace, Kingwater Market on Detroit Street and Coldwater Road in Mount Morish Township. The man had a pierced barbell at the top of his ear, similar to the one on the police sketch. He also drove a green overtan Chevy Blazer. Detective Og and the task force, made up of 20 to 40 local, state and federal investigators, started work at 6 a.m. Moore's tip was immediately marked a priority. It looked to be one of the better ones, said Og. With those pieces of information, it was a tip that we had to get on. Two investigators went to the market. They made contact with store employees. They were told of an employee known to them only as Eli. He had said he was going to Virginia on August 2nd to visit family members. Virginia? The mayor mentioned immediately raised suspicions, even more because there had been three knife attacks in Leesburg, Virginia, all eerily similar to the ones in Flint. More investigators were called to the market. By 9 or 10 a.m., Police were reviewing the store's surveillance video. They saw the Chevy... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. Laser. They saw Abu Al-Azam. The vehicle matched the description. So did he. In the early afternoon, they made contact with Moore's father, Tommy Moore, known as Catfish, because that's all he wanted to eat when he was a kid growing up in the South. He had worked with Abu Al-Azam both on the late-night shifts together for much of the summer. "'Do you have a number for Eli?' they asked. He said he did. He got his phone out and showed him the number. It had a 703 area code, the area code for Leesburg. Cell phone tracking experts were called in. They put out a ping on his cell phone. Whenever and wherever... Abuelazam's phone was, if it was on and had service, they would know his location, down to the closest cell phone tower. While they had his phone number, they still didn't have his full name. Moore and the other employees didn't know his last name. It was around this time that Detective Tidball was back at the Flint police station. She learned about the tip and was searching for Eli's in the FPD database. One popped up. It was another man named Elias, who also worked at party stores. He was tracked down and eventually ruled out, because he had an alibi. Back at the market, investigators learned of a recent bust there for selling a six-pack of beer to a miner. The man who made the sale was Eli. Elias Abuelazam, based on report filed by a Davison Township police officer who made the bust. Now they had his full name 
and knew where he was staying in Flint. On the cell phone track, nothing popped up for a while. That could mean several things. He had the cell phone off, he was in an area where he wasn't getting any service, or he was airborne. Eventually, his phone popped up in Louisville, Kentucky. The tracking expert said he is either at the Louisville airport or on an expressway driving by. Authorities called the Louisville airport, and they learned that Abu Azam was gone, but his luggage wasn't. Inside was a precious piece of evidence. Packed among the clothes was a pair of Levi's jeans and a pair of white New Balance tennis shoes with several small reddish-brown spots. It was blood. The cell phone went off. Now they figured he was flying. But where? That's where U.S. Customs agent Alf Cromwell came in. His world, he said, moves at 500 miles per hour. He could find anyone, anytime, anywhere, faster than any of the other investigators could imagine. Cromwell, based in Northern Virginia, had access to the nationwide flight manifest. He learned that Abu Azam had boarded the Detroit Metro Airport, headed to Louisville, and already had boarded another headed for Atlanta. He alerted the task force. Soon the phone came back on. Abu Azam was in Atlanta. Cromwell delivered urgent news. Abu Azam had been booked on another flight. It would leave at 10.15 p.m. The clock started ticking. Meanwhile, Flint Township Detective Randy Kimes and other investigators were about to do a search warrant on Abuela Zam's house at 3756 Maryland Avenue in Flint. We never stopped working, but we were relatively sure we had the right guy, said Kimes. Everything was falling into sequence. It was all tied together. At the house, on top of the dryer in the basement, sat a white New Amsterdam Gym t-shirt. Surviving victims had described their attacker as wearing that very type of shirt. Police also recovered the green overtan Chevy blazer at a friend of the family's. From there, it did not last long. The police found out Eli was about to board a plane for Tel Aviv, Israel, and they had to act fast. Despite his identity being kept a mystery at first, almost all the passengers on flight DL-152 from Atlanta to Tel Aviv on Thursday noticed something wasn't right about passenger Elias Abuelazam. The first clue was when American federal police officers boarded the flight, along with bloodhounds, and combed every corner of the plane. Shortly afterwards, the police walked off the plane along with the bulky Elias, wearing a white shirt and in handcuffs. While the passengers didn't learn more about the affair until they landed, their relatives waiting for them at the Ben-Gurion Airport Arrivals Hall already heard from reporters that a man removed from the flight before takeoff was no ordinary passenger, but a suspected serial killer. 
Dahlia Chauvel-Shakes, who was waiting for her 12-year-old daughter to return from a summer vacation in the United States, said, We didn't know anything about what was going on. My daughter Romy called and said there was a delay with the flight. We had no idea there was a serial killer on the flight. I'm really worried. She is alone on the flight. One nerve-wrecking hour later, Romy landed and gave Wynette her account of what happened on the flight. The guy was sitting right next to me. He had an Israeli appearance. He looked completely Israeli. He seemed a little nervous, and suddenly police came over and asked him to go with them. They handcuffed him and took him away. He did not resist and did not say anything special. The name they called on the loudspeaker sounded like an Arabic name. I had no idea what was going on. Now, when you tell me he could be a serial killer, it gets a whole new frightening meaning, the young woman said. The Williams, an African-American family on their first visit to Israel, were surprised to hear that the man whose arrest they witnessed on the plane was suspected of murdering a number of African-Americans. Really? We had no idea. We didn't even hear of those murders, one of them told the media outlet Wynette. The family said he was talking on the phone at the time of his arrest. We saw him being let off. Even when they combed the plane with dogs, we had no idea it was a murderer. It is very surprising to hear this. During Abuelazam's eight-day trial, the prosecution showed that one of the victims, named Minor, Blood was found on the steering wheel and floor of Abuelazam's Chevy Blazer, his size 8 New Balance shoes and Levi jeans. Jurors also heard testimony from four of the surviving victims who identified Elias Abuelazam as their attacker. The survivors talked about how Abuelazam asked for directions or help with his vehicle before attacking them. When you look at all these crimes, look at all the characteristics, said Genesee County Prosecutor David Layton, it leads to one thing. It was planned, it was thought out, it was premeditated. Layton said prosecutors had mountains of evidence that showed Abuelazam was guilty. On the other hand, Abuelazam's attorneys said he was insane at the time of the attacks. A psychiatrist, Dr. Norman Miller, hired by the defense, said Abuelazam suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Abuelazam said evil forces caused him to attack people. More specifically, he told a state psychologist that he felt possessed and had to attack people to get soul-sucking demons out of him. The 35-year-old Israeli told the court that he would drive around at night, saying he was exhausted and under the possession of evil spirits. In his own words, Eli said, I wanted to hurt him, but I didn't want to hurt him at the same time. This being moved me. It didn't control my mind. It moved me. It caused me to hurt him. When I saw the man on the ground bleeding, I went home and laid on the bed, and the spirit left me. I felt like a human being again. <laughs>
He admitted attacking each of the nine victims he was charged with stabbing. Prosecutors rebutted Miller's testimony with three witnesses of their own that said he was not insane. Genesee County Prosecutor David Layton said the experts believe Abuelazam has a personality defect as opposed to being insane. He's organized. He's lucid during each and every one of the attacks, said Layton. The jury only deliberated for about an hour before delivering the guilty verdict. The rest of the time was spent at lunch and reconvening everyone in the courtroom. On June the 25th, 2012, Abuel Azam was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He is currently incarcerated at Michigan Department of Corrections, and his inmate number is 842658. Despite the pleas to the court, state prison records show Abuel Azam has continued to be disciplined for multiple violent interactions with both guards and other inmates, including fights, threats, and possession of a large shank made from plexiglass. Abuel Azam's run-ins with prison staff began in November of 2012, less than five months after being sentenced to spend the remainder of his life behind bars. A female guard was making a yard round November 5th, 2012, at a Ionia correctional facility when she asked Abuel Azam if he wanted yard time, according to an MDOC misconduct report. Abuel Azam responded with an expletive-laden onslaught that included a threat to cut the guard's head off. I believe if given the opportunity, this prisoner would attempt to carry out his threat, the guard wrote in her report. Abuel Azam, during a disciplinary hearing, admitted to making the statement, but attempted to downplay the situation. He claimed he made the statement because he was angry about the quality of the prison food. I apologize if I disrespected her. Abuel Azam said during his disciplinary hearing. He lost his privileges for 30 days as punishment for the incident. Less than a month after having his privileges restored, Abuel Azam was again accused of threatening prison staff. A guard at the Alger Correctional Facility claimed he heard loud banging coming from a cell around 1 p.m. on December 13th, 2012. When he responded, he claims he found Abuel Azam pacing around inside his cell, according to the misconduct report. The guard asked Abuel Azam if he was kicking his cell door. Yes, I was, and you will not violate my rights, Abuel Azam shouted at the guard. Open my door. The guard said saliva sprayed from Abuel Azam's mouth. His eyes were wide open and unblinking. If you violate my rights, you will be punished, Abuel Azam yelled. Keep violating my rights and I will punish you. Abuel Azam then began pacing around his cell, punching his right fist into his hand. You will not violate my rights. I do what I say. Open my door, he continued. He lost his privileges for another 30 days for that incident. 
while 2013 and 2014 passed with little wrongdoing, only a complaint of possessing inmate-made alcohol was filed in 2014, Abuel Azam's time in prison turned violent in early 2015. Abuel Azam and another prisoner approached each other around 7.45 p.m. under a basketball hoop at the Lakeland Correctional Facility. The two began exchanging punches to the head, according to a misconduct report. The other prisoner fell to the ground, and Abuel Azam continued to hit him. Prison staff had to transfer the other prisoner in an ambulance to the emergency room for injuries sustained in the fight. Abuel Azam sustained substantial injuries to his hands, face, and head. Authorities also located a puncture wound to his lower back and transported him to the emergency room as well. Eli was segregated from the other inmates for 10 days and again lost his privileges for 30 days. His potentially violent conduct continued April 1st, 2015. Guards were searching his cell when they discovered a 6.5-inch long piece of plexiglass in his mattress. The shank was sharpened on one end and had a cloth handle on the other. He was again segregated for 10 days despite denying any knowledge of the weapon. His outbursts again turned toward guards in September of 2015 when he was accused of shoving one guard and ignoring the orders of another. He was given 20 more days of segregation and 60 more days of no privileges for those instances. Despite the behavioral problems, Abuel Azam has continued to petition the courts for his release. The state appeals court declined to overturn his conviction, and the state supreme court declined to hear his case. He filed a lawsuit asking to be extradited back to Israel to stand trial on a stabbing charge, but the case was ultimately dismissed. His most recent case is a habeas corpus petition filed in a Detroit U.S. District Court. It was filed the same day he was last released from segregation. Eli claims the trial judge, Genesee Circuit Judge Judith A. Fullerton, deprived him of a fair trial by not moving the case out of Genesee County and erred by admitting evidence of the other attacks. That case is still pending. He is currently serving his sentence at the Gus Harrison Correction Facility in Adrian, Michigan. I have been your host, Thomas Weiborg Thune. Doing this podcast is a labor of love, but again, I humbly direct you, dear listener, to my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the serial killer podcast. Finally, as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. And join me next time for another tale of serial murder. Good night and good luck.